Okay, so I'm very excited here. I got a whole bunch of calls from a gentleman named Nick, who does not have a podcast, but maybe he'll start a chainmail podcast, who knows, um, who is, uh, you know, messing around chainmail and playing some, uh, some games with his wife. So what follows is uh, my answers to his queries and some pretty cool observations from Nick. Hey, Daniel. Uh, this is Nick. Uh, I don't have a podcast yet. I'm just a listener, but uh, really enjoying your uh, stuff about chainmail and OD&D. And uh, my wife and I decided to sit down yesterday and had the holiday off and uh, decided to play a little bit of a one-on-one uh, game using OD&D and uh, using some of the guidelines from your uh, document that you posted. So thanks for that. It's been really uh, cool listening to your podcast over the past few weeks. Um, it's given me a lot of inspiration uh, to, to the point where I even maybe foolishly uh, decided to run some uh, convention games uh, using uh, Chainmail. Uh, so I signed up to do one at Origins and uh, one uh, probably at Gamehole Con uh, this fall. Uh, so anyway, I have some questions and observations. I'm going to run out of time on this voicemail, so I'll send another one. Okay, it's Nick again. Uh, just a couple observations about Chainmail. Um, we rolled up a, a level one cleric uh, for my wife to play, and she had a mercenary uh, sidekick who had a crossbow. And uh, we did some uh, role play and some wilderness stuff, and we decided to have a random encounter combat with some bandits and uh, so I had three bandits uh, and we decided to do troop combat for our first try and um, so uh, the cleric was uh, armored foot uh, for defense and heavy foot for uh, attack the crossbow guy had a heavy crossbow and I guess light uh, foot for defense and then the bandits were light foot all around, and uh, so we did a little combat, uh, and I'll send you some of my observations. So yeah, we had the um, initiative roll, and the, uh, the bandits were going to move first, so they started to move towards the party, and they were going to probably uh, almost be in melee range, uh, which then occurred to me, like, hmm, this is interesting. If you win initiative and troop, and you can close into melee, does that then obviate the ability of the opposing side to uh, make a missile attack. Uh, if so, that would be really uh, kind of powerful boon for the side that wins initiative, uh, basically being able to potentially stop missile attack from happening. Um, so just kind of a question, I guess, maybe something I might fiddle with when I'm uh, running it or playing it is, you know, if, if the other side is going to close in and, and engage in melee or force a melee, would... Uh, fighters with a missile weapon be able to attack them as they charge. Something to think about. So yes, in fact, you discovered a very powerful move. And I believe this is common in wargaming from what I've seen. You want to win initiative so you can get your troops in such a place so they cannot be fired, missiles cannot be fired into them. It's a common uh, tactic and 100% would be how I would run it, and in fact have run it. So, yes, if you charge up on somebody who has a missile weapon and you want initiative, they cannot fire on you uh, because missile round hasn't happened, happened yet. That being said, during your movement phase, you could switch weapons. Like, that's basically what you would do. So you've got your crossbow man there, like you're describing, 
and the they're gonna they win initiative they start charging up he would likely drop his crossbow and draw a sword for his movement right and then that's how he'd be able to fight if he only had a crossbow well he probably should have rethought that <laughs> so i basically kind of ruled that um the crossbow man could fire uh, at the three bandits as they were coming in and uh this is something where I realized maybe I shouldn't have used troop uh, system when I just have one guy with a crossbow because, you know, using that uh, table um, that you have in uh, your document, he was able to roll three dice, uh, basically because he was at short range and he had, uh, you know, two, two crossbow dice per man. Um, and he had a really good chance of hitting as a heavy crossbow versus light foot. So he was basically getting hits on... Uh, four, five, and six with three dice, he had a very good chance actually of killing all three guys. Uh, in fact, he got two hits, uh, which would kill two guys. Um, and I don't know, that's a question I might have about crossbow is, uh, should the number of hits be limited to the number of actual men firing, um, kind of representing their ability to reload and shoot? Yes, that, that is a quirk of the crossbow in a sense, right? Because it's hard to imagine getting extra shots off in the crossbow if you want to think of it that way. I do have a little note about that that says, yes, it's called, uh, you know, one shot, but it's equivalent. So, yeah, I mean, you could run it that way, and I might even do that myself, house rule it that uh, in that case, I would only allow one of them to die. Or you could house rule it that the shot just was so powerful at close range, the crossbow bolt shot through one of them and, and came out the back and stabbed into the other guy. I mean... Stranger things have happened, I think, right, in, in, in action movies. So, I mean, I like to give the power to the heavy crossbow, so I might not change it, but I might. It really kind of depends. Uh, for now, I'm trying to leave everything kind of as is because I think that's just simpler, but uh, certainly that, that's an interesting change and one that I had considered. Of course, you would have nullified the power of the heavy crossbow if you hadn't allowed him to shoot. Just throw that in there. So again, if you do, if you are going to modify it the way you did it, then maybe you also want to modify it the other way. But if not, then I would leave it the same because, yeah, it's really powerful. But if somebody charges up on you, you're basically out of luck. So yeah, another kind of question about missile combat that's maybe not so clear for me is how does movement work with missile combat? Um, you know, in the actual. In the original chainmail document, if, if, as I recall, in the troop combat, if you uh, move uh, more than half your distance uh, during a round, you have to do a dice off to see if you're able to fire or not. Um, and then also, you know, kind of rate of fire issues uh, come in as well. I know some of the, the troops could probably uh, fire twice if they uh, stand still. You know, thinking about swords and wizardry, for example, you know, I know it uses the alternative combat system, but, you know, one of their interesting rules is you can either move or shoot missile weapons, not, not both. Uh, so that's something, again, I might use when I run it. So missile weapons are definitely probably the most quirky part of this whole thing. And I think the reason for that is because I did not want to have a kind of a third system. Because in Chainmail, there is no troop missile, right? They, they, well, there is, but it's like a completely different system. So I decided to just use the charts and kind of uh, make them work just so that everything was consistent. But because of that, there's some weirdness. And if you look under the different missile weapons, some of them will say stuff like, cannot move and shoot. I think the crossbow says that, the light crossbow. So 
In the case of a short bow, for instance, unless you're able to do a split move and shoot, you'd have to move your full move during the movement phase and then shoot. Um, or you could stay still. You couldn't shoot, move, shoot unless you had a, a split move and shoot thing like the elves have. So, But I do allow movement and then shooting, at least the way I run it. But I definitely could see a reduced rate of fire or complete loss of fire if you move. I mean, that's not unreasonable. And that may, like I say, you have to dice, dice off in chainmail. And, I, you know, I kind of tried to remove things where there was lots of extra um, <laughs> extra things going on. Even though uh, my whole thesis here right, is that, that I, I like the idea of not a core mechanic, I felt like within each of the different processes, I wanted to keep things kind of simple. So there wasn't like one oddball thing going on. So I, that's why I kept the charts for everything. So, um, yeah, I'm really curious um, how it will work out if you do the movement thing the way you're talking about. One more observation I have about chainmail and the uh, combat system is, so I had this uh, combat going between my my uh, wife's PC and her henchmen versus three bandits, and so the the henchmen took out two of them with a crossbow before melee could start, and then I we kind of had the story be that he was reloading so that the cleric could uh, engage in a one-on-one kind of duel with the surviving bandit, and uh, at that point I decided, well, let's maybe go to man-to-man because uh, with troop combat I think there's with hits kind of coming simultaneously in a one-on-one scenario it's a pretty good likelihood of them both killing each other uh, and we just thought it would be more fun to try the man-to-man system um, so that's kind of an observation I made is that yeah you could use you know you could use troop for a lot of different things but you know man-to-man certainly seems more appropriate for one-on-one combat obviously that's a great point and something that I think people that are going to use this system need to consider is that you don't, you're don't you not locked in. You can start off in troop, switch to man-to-man, even switch to fantasy, whatever uh, is the best option for that exact moment that's happening in the combat. I will say, though, for her point of view, in troop combat, you uh, <laughs> you can't be attacked, right? Um, unless, uh, unless if you have any uh, henchmen, they, they, they automatically absorb the blows. So, um, <laughs> you know, it might be better to stay in troop, but, but then you might lose your henchmen. So maybe you want to take the person on one-on-one to not lose your henchmen, right? Because you are three hit dice. I don't know what level she was. She's multiple hit dice, and maybe the henchman might die. So, yeah, man-to-man is great for that kind of stuff. And, you know, certainly uh, it's pretty cool to switch back and forth. I would also consider how important the combat is, right? If that was a random encounter and it was just an extra thing to happen and it wasn't important... I mean, I guess that you guys are playtesting it, so you want to really enjoy the combat and stuff. But let's say it was just a quick thing that just happened to happen and whatever, then you might want to leave it in troop just because it will end really quickly. In fact, at that point, you might have even just had the band, you know, morale check. You could have done any number of things. But sure, I'm I'm glad you switched to man-to-man because I actually really enjoy the man-to-man system. It just is a little bit more involved and more difficult, I've found, to run if you've got multiple players who are new to the system. So... I've kind of been little by little, you know, bringing my players into it. So anyway, we uh, we did a man-to-man combat, and that was kind of fun. Uh, the uh, cleric had a morning star, so that's a nice high-class weapon versus the bandit's sword, which was a little bit lower class, lighter, faster. So uh, the cleric was going to get the first hit, which was good, and uh, she managed to kill the bandit. Uh, before he could uh, attack back. At least that's my interpretation of man-to-man is that, you know, unlike troop, uh, the first strike, uh, if it kills in uh, 
in my interpretation, and she did. She, you know, rolled a five on her damage, and the bandit had three hit points. So if, uh, you know, if the first strike kills the opponent, then the opponent does not get to uh, attack back, uh, you know, which I guess is a pretty important distinction compared to troop combat, where um, no matter what the result would be, each side would be able to exchange exchange blows. Yes, that's exactly true. If, if you uh, attack in man-to-man and you strike first and you kill them, the other person does not get to go. So that is a big disti- distinction, like you said, between troop, which is all simultaneous. I will say, though, if I'm following this combat correctly, that your cleric got a little shortchanged because if the bandits ran up and the, the, uh, the archer got to shoot, then there should have been a... actually the, And actually, so the bandit gets shortchanged, that one bandit, because there should have still been melee because they moved into melee range, in theory. So yeah, I think you didn't finish the first round. Uh, and then you went directly into man-to-man. So you would have you would have needed to f- needed to finish that first round, unless both sides decided not to do anything. But I, I think the bandit probably would have done something. So uh, you may have skipped that. So I, I would have switched to man-to-man on the second round, and I would have allowed the bandit to attack and the cleric to also to do a melee attack that first round since they did move in. And I just have one kind of more question here, or one observation about uh, using chainmail with OD&D, and that's with regards to the fantasy combat, which is really kind of an interesting one. Um, I think, you know, talking about movement and missile, I think that kind of goes out the window if you're dealing with fantasy combat. I think once you enter in fantasy combat, you get into a much more narrative space where you can, you know, certainly have, say, oh, my elf is going to run over here and fire his bow and, you know, shoot several arrows at the dragon or whatever. Um, So I think it's kind of neat because you don't even have to worry about those kind of nitty-gritty... uh, specific details, you know, about positioning and things like that, and you can move into that more uh, imaginative space of how a, a battle with a fantasy creature would be. Uh, and I think that's kind of one of the coolest things about using uh, chainmail as opposed to the alternative combat system. But it does have a problem, which I guess I'm going to get to. So I guess my only uh, problem or question about the fantasy combat system. Uh, as laid out in Chainmail and as you've put it in your document, is the uh, requirement of being heroic uh, or being a hero equivalent to even engage in that. Now, it's interesting in the in some of the wording in your document and on the charts in Chainmail itself, it seems to indicate to me that a hero uh, or would be kind of the minimum requirement uh, to be able to fight uh, that troll or dragon, uh, meaning uh, fourth level fighting man or equivalent. Now, I guess the question now is what counts as an equivalent to a hero? Um, are you going to say that a level four cleric, because they're in the heroic type category, um, that seems to come from delving deeper, that that qualifies as a hero for fantasy combat? Hmm. Good question. Uh, no. So when you're, <laughs> I don't like to start with saying the no, but uh, no, you would. It's not the type of person. It is what they fight as that matters on fantasy combat. So if you fight as a hero, so that'd be again a fourth level fighting man. I think for a cleric, it's like sixth level. They become they fight as a hero, and uh, I believe a magic user also at some point fights as a hero. But then of course they also fight as wizards. So yeah, no, it's it's it, if you look at your your um, fights as. Or attack, I can't remember what it's called. I don't have the book in front of me, unfortunately. I don't have any of my books with me. I'm going off memory. Um, you look at that to see if you can find it on the chart. Um, or if you have a magic sword, 
then that can allow you to fight as a hero. So I don't know if that's just some wording that I should maybe change up. That's a good point. Um, but yeah, you wouldn't you wouldn't let a fourth level, fourth level cleric fight on it because they are not a hero. Also, I mean, I guess to kind of address, I think the general idea here is that yeah, it does kind of it is kind of unfortunate, right? That that you can't just always fight on it. But I think that the the chart would be crazy if you could, right? Because if you allowed everybody to fight on it, then you would need to have different uh, levels, right? Of of type types, right? And then you'd also have to have all the monsters on there. So I, I think that unfortunately, as as much as I love, like you say, the narrative aspect, and I think it's one of the coolest parts of. And actually, one it is the part that really got me into wanting to use chainmail. I think it, it, uh, it, yeah, it's limited to that level. That's why I found myself mostly starting people at third and fourth level for exactly that reason, or giving fighters magic swords just so they can fight on that chart. So, um, you know, and again, that just because they can't hurt the creature unless they're a hero or fight on the chart doesn't mean they can't do something. You know, they can be doing other things, and I think that's part of kind of in my mind the old school play uh, method is that if you can't hurt the creature, you can still help in some way. Like, I just ran a game uh, not too long ago, and there was a magic user there, and, and she could not fight as a hero against this demon creature. So she said, I want to, you know, jump up and try to cover its eyes so it can't see, maybe give it some kind of a disadvantage or throw it off balance or something. So I gave her a chance. You know, I made up some kind of ruling on the spot to try it. Um, <laughs> she didn't succeed, unfortunately. And the creature just killed her. And it was it was still epic, you know. Uh, I, I wasn't going to say, oh, no, you can't touch it at all because you're not a hero. It just means you can't hurt it, um, you know, in that sense. Because it seems like if you're going to say that a fourth level cleric or a, or a fourth level magic user is a hero and can fight on the fantasy combat, then you know what's the benefit in that case of being a fighting man, other than I guess you could use a magic sword or something. Um, alternatively, if you're going to rule that you know if you're going to have sort of the fighting capability. Um, scheme where, you know, you have to be a 7th level cleric to be a hero, uh, or an 8th level magic user to be a hero, then you end up in a scenario where, you know, you're playing this campaign or whatever, and your PCs can't really engage at all with fantastic creatures in combat until, some of them, until 7th or 8th level, which seems kind of high. I mean, do you, do we really want to have a game where the party can't deal with ghouls uh, or an ogre? Uh, you know, or some other, you know, a, a griffin. <laughs> I guess I beat you to it there. Uh, so, okay, as I said before, yes, it is based on fight, fighting capability. But to answer what you're saying, which sort on the surface that seems to be a, a, a good logical question or, or a thought, if you look at most of the creatures that are on the fantasy combat table, most of them are not of the type that can only be fought on fantasy combat. That is, you can fight an ogre not on fantasy combat, or you can fight them on fantasy combat. It really kind of just depends on how you want to run it. And there are advantages to either situation. So, yeah, a magic user or a cleric, if they want to use a, a, a weapon, you know, to engage with a creature in fantasy combat, they need to be really high level. But both of them could use a spell. They could also do other things to, 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 um, to bolster the party. I, I honestly think that one of the strengths of this chainmail system, ODD chainmail, is that it actually makes fighters really the hero. I mean, you know, yes, I mean, if you if we've run ODD for a while, you'll see that magic users are devastating, especially once they get to like third or fourth level. But 
you know, fighters really are the hero, right? So when you are facing the dragon and the whole party is sixth level and only the fighter can hit them with his magic sword, but the magic user can cast spells to help. The cleric can do other things to help the party. They can make distractions. They can, you know, use magic in some way. So it does allow for the whole party to engage in different ways. Not everybody's a fighter. Like, everybody doesn't run up to the dragon with their dagger or sword and try to stab it. That's the fighter's job. So I, I really love that distinction. Right, because it, uh, yeah, it seems like if that's your stipulation, then, you know, maybe the fighter at level four could be battling the uh, ogre while the other uh, guys are fighting something else or doing some non-combat thing. Uh, but, I don't know, it just seems like kind of limiting the combat encounters to, you know, your orcs and skeletons and men uh, seems kind of, I don't know, a little underwhelming to wait until, you know, 4th or 7th or 8th level uh, for a lot of the players. So, anyway, just a thought. I know, obviously, they could do other things to defeat that dragon or whatever, such as casting spells or setting traps, etc., which maybe that's kind of the cool thing about it, is it allows you to be more creative and say, no, you keep, I'm sorry, I know you're a 5th level cleric and you're a badass, but uh, you can't kill that dragon. It's too tough. Yeah, I think in one of my earlier episodes, maybe the first episode, I actually talk about the idea that I love the idea that, like, you know, you can't kill that dragon. Like, I that just, that makes me happy, you know, that you can't just go up and stab it. Because it actually makes a world where you need heroes. You know, because think about it. If anybody can hurt a dragon and you have a village with a, with a militia of, you know, 50 guys then why haven't they killed the dragon? Why does it take this, you know, five-person adventuring party on third level to do it? So, yeah, I, I really do like that. And it's something I would not change. And like I said, most of those monsters, like ogres, griffins, stuff like that, are not in the category of that can only be hit by uh, magic weapons or fantasy combat. And again, magic, magic weapons is also sometimes an option. Anyway, those are my observations and questions and... Sorry for leaving a bunch of really long messages, but uh, just wanted to uh, encourage you and say, hey, thanks for putting this podcast together. It's been really fun and interesting for me to listen to. Um, um, having a good time screwing around with it. I mean, my wife and I spent probably two and a half hours yesterday playing, you know, just to do character creation and, and, and one fight with a couple of bandits. Uh, but it was great. It was fun. You know, it was something totally different from what we're used to after years of rolling D20s. Um, and uh, I guess that's also kind of the beauty of the one-on-one -on -one game is you can go as fast or slow as you want to go. And uh, nobody else has to wait. So anyway, uh, keep up the good work, Daniel. Really enjoying listening to it. Uh, and hope to, uh, hope to hear some more from you about Chainmail in the future. Bye. Thanks so much for all your feedback, uh, Nick. I think this is great. It's good to have a little uh, dialogue <laughs> because uh, I want to see what other people are doing with it. And, and of course, I'm just... I think the great fun of this for me was looking at what other people had done with Chainmail and OD&D and, and looking at it and kind of what you're doing and saying, hmm, I wonder if I would have done that a little bit differently. So if you look at like what other people did, like I put some links in the beginning of the document, you know, they didn't do it exactly the way I did. And I made it work for the way I think is best. Um, and, you know, that's basically <laughs> that's basically what I recommend, you know, if, if you want to make those changes. Uh, I would love to hear how they play out over, over time. And uh, thanks so much for your kind words. And yeah, I'm going to keep doing it. I, I've been running um, 
uh, once a month now a uh, a game on Twitch uh, using the this system, and it's been super super fun. So thanks again for calling. But wait, there's more. Hi Daniel, this is Nick again. Just uh, wanted to touch base. I was uh, kind of talking about fantasy combat in my last few messages uh, and lower level characters. I uh, played another uh, session with my wife last night and we had her level one cleric and henchman go up against a werewolf with four hit die. And because I realized in the back of your document you have fighting capabilities listed for all the monsters, which was cool. So I said, oh, okay, so you can use these in troop and the uh, werewolf is uh, like attacks his armored foot and defends his heavy foot or something like that. So we use that. The werewolf just shredded that henchman. Uh, the cleric, though, used uh, protection from evil as a spell, which is very powerful and lowers the uh, werewolf to three hit die, interestingly. Uh, and so she was able to survive and escape. But I thought that was cool. Thanks. Okay. This is pretty awesome. This is what I love about old games and everything about it. You know, you mentioned about the protection from evil, and I thought, huh? And I looked up, and sure enough, it says, subtracts minus one from the hit dice. Now, I always interpreted that as their roll to hit, it subtracts minus one from it. But the way you're interpreting that is, if it's not more correct than what I'm doing, it is now. That is crazy good. Wow. Okay, yes. And also, I don't know if you noticed that, I mean, obviously your henchman died, but and the cleric can't use a bow, but silver-tipped arrows would have made the werewolf only equivalent to a light foot, so they can be killed very easily by silver-tipped arrows, which, again, is one of the cool things about this system. There's lots of cool, neat things going on. So that's great that you're still keeping at it, and wow, that is great. That is that is absolutely great. Okay, so this is really the end. <laughs> if you've made it this far, thanks for listening. Thanks, Nick, for setting me up with an entire episode. Um, I've got a bunch of other calls and some other things going on too, guys. I've just been really crazy busy, so expect another episode from me very soon. And I probably am going to do, probably, I'm definitely going to do an episode where I talk a little bit more. I've been running a chainmail game, as I started to mention, uh, once a month now on Twitch. And it's been super fun. And I've been bringing always a new player in that's never played any D&D or very little D&D. And as well as a mixer of kind of more um, experienced players. And we're just having a blast with it. So until next time, I'll see you.